Hello, and welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I'm Kevin Yan, one of the PGY3s in the Yale Neurology Program, and today I have with me a very special guest, Dr. Kevin Wilson. Longtime listeners will undoubtedly recognize him as one of my predecessors as the host of this podcast. He was responsible for recording many episodes during his time as a resident here, and he is now my favorite Yale Neuromuscular Fellow. Welcome back, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be here with my favorite future neuro-ophthalmologist from the Yale Neurology <laughs> class of 2024. It's very specific. <laughs> so today, Kevin has agreed to come back and talk about Guillain-Barre syndrome, especially the inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathies. So Kevin, let's start with acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy because that is probably where most of our listeners immediately jumped to when they heard this topic. What's your typical clinical vignette? Yeah, the classic story for a patient who is presenting with acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy is the classic thing that people think of when they think of Guillain-Barre syndrome is going to be a patient who presents with progressive flaccid weakness and areflexia. Now, often these patients will have a story of some sort of antecedent infection, the classic one of those being Campylobacter for a diarrheal illness. Also, antecedent viral illnesses like a viral upper respiratory infection can be found. So these are the common things that you'll see. Now, there are a variety of variations on that that we can get into in a little bit, but the key classic points that you're looking for are progressive weakness, typically ascending, so starting distally and progressing proximally, and areflexia, progressive loss of reflexes. For AIDP specifically, we would expect to see both motor and sensory symptoms. Generally, yes. These patients will also have some sort of paresthesias as part of their presenting complaint. So what's the pathophysiology of acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, Kevin? So the basic principle is that you're looking at autoantibodies that cause some sort of disruption of the myelin sheath. Typically, the primary basis that we're thinking of is autoantibodies that, at least in the demyelinating forms, cause damage to the myelin sheath. Obviously, this gets more complicated with axonal variants and with the chronic syndromes with nodopathies or paranodopathies. But in the form of classic demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, you're thinking about antibodies directed at the myelin sheath. Now, we don't always know all of the antibodies. Many of them tend to be ganglioside antibodies, which we'll discuss a little bit more in the future. The mainstay of the underlying pathophysiology is antibody mediated via those antibodies, whether we've identified them or not. And going back to the physical examination findings, we discussed the decreased motor strength. We discussed decreased sensation, and specifically, we discussed areflexia. These are common findings, and I would argue that areflexia is required for a consideration of a diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome of any kind, though, with a caveat that they might be preserved early on. What are some other common findings that you can see on physical examination, and what are some physical examination findings that may key you into a different diagnosis? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the non-negotiable things typically that you're going to have is that progressive weakness, usually distal to proximal, and areflexia. Some other things that are helpful or drive you towards a diagnosis of AIDP are relative symmetry. So typically patients presenting this way will have symmetric symptoms in both the right and left sides of their body in relatively equal proportion. Again, we mentioned the sensory symptoms that you'll often have. Usually those are milder. Again, these patients will often complain of paresthesias of some kind, but they may not even have a true sensory deficit. And then the course over several days to weeks is characteristic. It shouldn't really go beyond four weeks of progression, but typically that slowly progressive course or subacutely progressive course sometimes. 
Often these patients will have evidence of autonomic dysfunction in some subtypes more than in others, certainly, but they may describe gastrointestinal motility changes. They may describe orthostasis. So these sorts of things can happen as well. And I already mentioned this preceding illness, which is an important piece in terms of your history taking when you see one of these patients is to try to identify an antecedent illness, which might tip you off that this is one of these diseases that falls under the umbrella of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Things that might clue you in that, hey, maybe I ought to keep my ears pricked up that something other than Guillain-Barre is going on here, any sort of marked asymmetry. So if you have a patient who is significantly worse in one limb versus the contralateral limb, that's a little bit more concerning for another process. Any early or severe dysfunction of bowel or bladders or a clear sensory level ought to concern you that there's maybe a spinal cord process going on. And it's important to keep those things in mind. And the last thing to keep in mind is really more of something you're going to find once you've started your workup, which is to keep in mind that there can be infectious mimics of this autoimmune process. And we'll talk about how that plays into our workup in a minute. Let's just go straight to workup then, Kevin. If you have suspicion for Guillain-Barre syndrome or acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, what testing would you get? I think one of the most essential tests that you can get relatively early on is a lumbar puncture. And what you're looking for there is the sort of classic thing that you probably all remember from medical school, which is albuminocytologic dissociation, because we do love our big words. And that's relative increase in protein without concurrent increase in the cellularity of the CSF. Now, the one thing I'll caution you about there is that, at least in our lab here at Yale, the upper limit of normal for nucleated cells in the CSF is 5 for high-powered field. And then if you get above 5, but less than 50, that doesn't necessarily rule out your diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So I think it's important to keep that in mind, that you can have the presence of some nucleated cells in the CSF and not obviate this diagnosis. You're looking for that protein increase more than anything. But once you get a nucleated cell count above 50, you really ought to be more concerned that there's something else going on here, whether that's some sort of hematologic process or whether that's some sort of infectious process depends on other parts of your workup. But once you get above that 50 in terms of your cell count, you ought to be more concerned about those things. So the lumbar puncture is an important piece early on. And one of the tidbits I have for the medical historians out there is back in the early 1900s, they had a lot of patients who presented with this clinical vignette. They got lumbar punctures on a lot of them, and they found that some of them had elevated proteins while others did not. And what they found is that the people who had elevated protein tended to get better while the ones who had normal protein tended to stay where they were. So speaking of infectious mimics, it was found that the people with elevated protein more likely had Guillain-Barre syndrome, while the patients with normal protein more likely had poliomyelitis. That is interesting, and it makes sense. That gets at the other hallmark of this disease that I guess I didn't mention when I was talking about the clinical course before, because it won't help you diagnosis in the short term, but it is important to keep in mind, which is that this is typically a monophasic illness that gets better. Other important pieces of your initial diagnostic testing, particularly if you have a patient with a particular presentation that guides you towards one of the Guillain-Barre variants, serum antibody testing can be helpful. There are specific autoantibodies that we can talk about in a little bit. And then the last piece is your electrodiagnostics, your electromyography and nerve conduction study. Now, the important thing to keep in mind about those, say you have a patient walking in and they said, oh, last week I had an upper respiratory infection, and then four days ago I started feeling a little bit unsteady on my feet, and then they've had progressive weakness since then. If you get the electromyography and the nerve conduction study now, that may not actually be helpful. You may not see changes yet. So it's important to keep in mind that some of those changes that you're looking for, you may not find until you're about two to four weeks out from symptom onset. And the specific findings that you're looking for, at least in the demyelinating forms of disease, 
you're looking for things like conduction block, a relative decrease in the compound muscle action potential in your proximal tested muscles. So particularly a drop of greater than 50%, proximal versus distal, indicates conduction block. So basically enough demyelination has occurred that those axons, their signal's not getting through, that you actually lose some of the muscle response at the end because of the dropout and because of the interval demyelination between the proximal site of stimulation and the distal site of stimulation. Other things you can look for are absent or prolonged F waves. So again, that's a late response that's evaluating the integrity of the entire nerve. You can look for temporal dispersion as well, where you have a normal action potential that's very spread out, and that's because you have all of these fibers that have been varyingly demyelinated, and now instead of all conducting at one glorious speed, some of them are dropping out or coming in slower, and so you have a lower prolonged action potential instead of a nice, sharp, happy action potential. So those are some of the primary findings. And then you can find evidence on your needle electromyography of active denervation, although you may not find it again, as I mentioned early on. And those findings as a quick review are things like positive sharp waves and fibrillations and findings of that ilk that might indicate active denervation. One of the interesting things about electrodiagnostic testing for Guillain-Barre syndrome is that it's not entirely length dependent because the sural nerve, for whatever reason, is oftentimes spared. That's correct. So sural sparing is not a requirement, but we often do see it because Again, this is an autoimmune process. It's not necessarily a length-dependent process as we think of our, I don't want to say garden variety because it feels against my principles, but as our garden variety neuropathies that you might see with a common diabetic neuropathy is a length-dependent process. Or many of the other neuropathies we see in clinic are length-dependent processes. So distal nerves should be affected first, but that is not the case here. So you may see sural sparing because the sural nerve just hasn't been affected yet. Now let's talk about treatment of acute inflammatory demyelinating polyreticulineuropathy, Kevin. Yeah, so I think the most important thing to say about treatment is, as I mentioned, it's a monophasic disease typically. So it should get better on its own. And that means that supportive care is essential. So monitoring these patients is essential. The things that you're looking out for are bulbar and respiratory compromise as a result of the disease. So one of the most important parts of identifying these patients and one of the most important parts of your initial workup ought to be evaluating their respiratory status and then establishing a plan for continued monitoring of their respiratory status because you can expect it again to decline, particularly in those first four weeks after symptom onset. And it will reach a nadir at some point in there, but you want to make sure that you're monitoring these patients and being aware of their respiratory function. So The tools you can use for that are things like negative inspiratory force and vital capacity. And again, these are common benchmarks that you're using looking at negative inspiratory force of greater than negative 20 centimeters of water. So again, negative 19 centimeters of water or higher. We Uh, both enjoy being pedantic and mathematically, we have negative numbers if they're closer to zero than they're technically greater than. So to make it a little less confusing, one thing we could say, even though I love being mathematically accurate, even if it is confusing, one thing we could say is the absolute value of inspiratory force is less than 20 centimeters of water. <laughs> that would be a reasonable thing to say. It may muddy the water. <laughs> the point is your negative inspiratory force, you're concerned about it being less forceful, closer to zero, I should say. And then again, you're looking at vital capacities and you're thinking of vital capacity less than a liter. But again, it can be helpful to look at patients' body size and tag your vital capacity concern to their body size. Two of the mainstays of treatment that we have are intravenous immunoglobulin therapy and plasmapheresis. Which one do you usually go to first, Kevin, and why? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And once you've established your patient's stability and you're monitoring their respiratory status and you've got that all set up, you want to move into our treatments. And again, the goal with these treatments is to hasten their recovery. They don't induce recovery, but they hasten it. These patients, as I said, tend to get better. And the goal of either IVIG or plasmapheresis is to increase the rate at which they return to their new baseline, which ideally is their old baseline, but may not always be. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that there's no evidence that one of these treatments is superior to the other. Many people will say that it is more sensible to start with plasmapheresis if you're going to do both, although there's actually no evidence that following up one treatment with another has any increased beneficial effect. The reason people do say to do plasmapheresis first is that if you give intravenous immunoglobulin and then you plasmapheresis somebody two weeks later, you're essentially lighting, oh, I don't know, $30,000 on fire because you're just phoresing off the intravenous immunoglobulin that you just infused. So that would be the logic behind that. Now, again, the data says that subsequent treatments for a patient who has already reached their nadir and is now getting better, or certainly not getting worse, that subsequent treatments are not necessary. Now, what I will say, now that I've said that subsequent treatments are not necessary and that only one treatment of either intravenous immunoglobulin or plasmapheresis is sufficient, what I will also say is that about 10% of patients, maybe a little bit more than 10% of patients, will actually relapse. So after they have started to improve, they will again worsen. In those patients, it actually is worthwhile to give a repeat treatment. So that is the one exception that I will call out to the, you don't need to give multiple treatments for a patient who has particularly bad symptoms of Guillain-Barre. I think it's somewhat unfortunate that practical concerns do guide what we do first because intravenous immunoglobulin therapy is relatively easy to administer while plasmapheresis is not. You have to get a quintin catheter or some kind of central catheter in place and then bring the patient to an apheresis or lap medicine infusion center. We typically also don't pherese patients on consecutive days, whereas IVIG can be given on consecutive days. So patients who get plasmapheresis often have longer hospital stays. So Often we do go with intravenous immunoglobulin first because of practical considerations. And one important question to ask, Kevin, is, is there a role for corticosteroid therapy early? There is not. Certainly not in the Guillain-Barre syndrome. There's no evidence that it's helpful, and there are some studies that indicate that it might actually be harmful to these patients. So corticosteroids are not an essential part of the acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathies. And... On that note, let's segue to the chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathies. What's the main difference? The main difference is really time course. You may have heard me harping on that four-week time course. You expect these patients in the acute syndrome to progress over the course of four weeks or so. Chronic patients tend to go over at least eight weeks. So it's your time course that's going to give it away. You're looking for a lot of the same findings on your electromyography and nerve conduction studies, as I mentioned before, with F-wave prolongation or F-wave dropping, temporal dispersion and conduction block, as well as in the case of these demyelinating variants anyway, reduced conduction velocity. So those things are going to often be the same. Again, there's a variety of autoantibody testing that we can do. It tends to be some different autoantibodies that are involved in the chronic process as well. What's the main treatment for chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy? So these patients will actually do well with steroids. So you can treat them with steroids. Some of them also will get maintenance intravenous immunoglobulin. You could theoretically also do maintenance plasmapheresis, but there are major logistical concerns with that. These patients who get maintenance plasmapheresis have major issues with access and often end up with ports placed, and ports come with all sorts of infectious risks, and so we try to avoid that. So maintenance intravenous immunoglobulin is also an important mainstay. 
Let's pivot and talk a little bit about some other variants of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Both acute and chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyridicular neuropathy, as the name suggests, are demyelinating forms. So there are also axonal forms of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So what's the big clinical distinction in your mind? Yes, you, you do have axonal variants. They also have helpful acronyms like AMAN, which is acute motor axonal neuropathy, and AMSAN, which is an acute motor and sensory axonal neuropathy. These patients often do a little bit worse clinically, so they'll often have more severe presentations. And they'll have different findings on their electromyography and nerve conduction studies. They typically won't have prolonged F-waves, although they will often have absent F-waves because of loss of axonal integrity. Again, you can find evidence of active denervation, although typically you'll see that, again, two to four weeks out from their initial presentation because that's a measure of loss of axons. And again, you'll see loss in compound muscle action potential amplitudes on their nerve conduction studies as well. Again, as I mentioned, these patients tend to have more severe presentations, and some of them will often take longer to recover and will be more likely to have more significant chronic deficits from their disease. And like with the demyelinating polyradicular neuropathies, I will include in our show notes some nerve conduction study tracings for the axonal neuropathies as well. Now let's talk about some of the antibody associated syndromes. So maybe we can start with the gangliocyte GQ1B antibodies. Yeah, if you're going to remember only one antibody from our discussion, GQ1B is the one to remember. Now, it's important to keep in mind that GQ1B is associated with more than one variant presentation. The two most important of which to remember are Miller-Fisher syndrome, which usually involves an ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia. And Miller-Fisher syndrome happens to be named for Dr. C. Miller-Fisher, who was a vascular neurologist. I believe he practiced at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He described several patients with this triad, and now the syndrome is named for him. Though I will say that I think when we're actually seeing patients and sending off the GQ1B antibodies, most patients with Miller-Fisher syndrome don't actually have all three components of his triad. That is interesting. I didn't know that about Miller-Fisher, largely because I despise eponyms, but, <laughs> but I do appreciate your commitment to the history of medicine. I will say that GQ1B is also associated with, well, frankly, a controversial diagnosis, which is Bickerstaff brainstem encephalitis. Some people will dispute the existence of this, although I think it's worth knowing about because it may prop up on tests here and there. So GQ1B antibodies are also associated with that. And that typically presents, again, with patients who have these areflexia weakness, and then they'll also have encephalopathy in addition to ophthalmoplegia and ataxia. For some variants of the chronic form of Guillain-Barre syndrome, we've got a few more fun acronyms and initialisms to talk about. There are definitely some variants there, and this is a little bit more of a heterogeneous section. So one of the common things that's often invoked and rarely diagnosed is something called MADSAM or Lewis-Sumner syndrome, if you want to use the eponym there. But these patients tend to have motor and sensory symptoms, and it's usually in the distribution of multiple discrete nerve distributions. So instead of being the symmetric and confluent thing that we see with your classic CIDP or Guillain-Barre, it's multiple discrete nerves that seem to be affected or nerve distributions that seem to be affected. And then, you know, over time, it can coalesce and look a little bit more confluent than that. Again, these patients tend to have similar findings, and it is a demyelinating process. They tend to have similar findings to patients who have CIDP on the electromyography and nerve conduction studies, with the exception that they're less diffuse, which makes sense because, as I said, it's a multifocal process instead of a confluent process. And again, the CSF protein is often elevated in many of these patients, including patients with Lewis-Sumner syndrome. 
Multifocal motor neuropathy is another one that's important to keep in mind. That's MMN. And it's important to keep in mind because it's often a mimic for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease since I'm doing eponyms now. So again, this is multiple discrete motor nerves that are affected. So these patients should not have sensory findings, but you'll have evidence of multifocal motor nerve dysfunction. So with multifocal motor neuropathy, though, the important thing that distinguishes it from, for instance, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is that you don't have those upper motor neuron signs. It's purely a disease of the lower motor neurons. And you won't have sensory dysfunction, which distinguishes it from other versions of chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. So multifocal motor neuropathy is also most commonly associated with a GM1 ganglioside autoantibody. So that's an important piece of our testing. It's one of these neuropathies that is associated with an antibody and for which antibody testing can be helpful. Another fun one that has an acronym that is one of my personal favorites is DADS, which is a distal symmetric, usually sensory neuropathy tends to occur largely in older patients. And it has a characteristically slow progression and it's characteristically difficult to treat. So these patients often do not respond well to medication. You can often find anti-MAG antibodies in these patients, which not that anti-MAG antibodies are specific for this because those can be found in other diseases as well, but it can be found in these DADS patients. And just in case it doesn't come through on the podcast, that's anti-MAG, M-A-G, myelin-associated glycoprotein antibodies, not to be confused with MOG or myelin-oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibodies. An important distinction. Very different diseases. The last variant I'll talk about of these chronic processes has fun-sounding, but maybe one of my least favorite acronyms, which is POEMS, which is polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, M-protein spike syndrome, and frankly, is many more things than that and involves many more issues than that. So the important thing to keep in mind about POEMS is that you'll have patients who have a polyneuropathy and then also have a plasma cell dyscrasia. These patients will have some sort of monoclonal plasma cell proliferation on their lab testing. An important diagnostic test for these patients, if you suspect it, is looking for VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor levels because those will often be elevated in patients with POEMS syndrome. And really the important part of treatment there is that you refer them to a hematologist, unless you are both a neurologist and a hematologist, in which case my condolences for the years of your life spent on medical education. All right. I think that's a good summary we've had about Guillain-Barre syndrome, their presentation, treatment, and a lot of the clinical variants. Thank you so much for joining me, Kevin. Welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed your time here, and we hope to have you back on in the future. Yep. Thanks for having me, everybody. Again, I hope you learned something, and take care.